the revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. Hi, Rick Allen here. I'm speaking with Desi Doyan, who hosts the Green News Report with Brad Friedman on KPFK's Bradcast and bradblog.com. Hi, Desi. Hi. So, last week uh, on your Green News Report, uh, you reported on the signing of the Historic Inflation Reduction Act and the effect it may or may not have on climate change. By the way, funny that there's not one word referring to climate in the bill. <laughs> I'm thinking of might be another concession the Dems had to give Joe Manchin, aside from chopping billions of dollars off the original uh, The social fusion. spending of the original idea, yes. <laughs> right. Be that as it may, it's still lauded as the biggest investment in U.S. climate history. So what do you feel are are the best climate-friendly parts of the bill. Well, it's huge. And that's, I think, the biggest part of it. It is, as you said, it's $369 billion spread out over 10 years. So it's not actually a whole lot. It's, you know, basically uh, $37 billion per year if you spread it out over 10 years like that. A lot a lot uh, less than the 550 it was before Manchin made some demands. Right, before Manchin slashed it. It is true. But the good news about this bill is that it already is paid for. Uh, It has lots of revenue raisers in there. So everything that we're talking about now, remember, keep in mind, it is all paid for and it will also reduce the deficit, um, which is not necessary because one, uh, you can talk to any economist and they will tell you you, deficit reduction should not be the top priority, but it is a top priority to secure Senator Manchin's vote. Senator Manchin, Democratic senator of the coal state of West Virginia, a coal baron himself who makes millions of dollars per year from his own personal coal investments. So yes, to get his vote, they had to put in a lot of concessions to him to make sure that this got passed. The good news is it got passed. And I think the best part about it is that it got passed. It was either this or nothing. And we are in the timing of the climate crisis that any effort we can put forth toward reducing fossil fuel emissions from going out into the atmosphere in the first place, anything we can do to avoid releasing carbon is a good thing. Even if the Democrats had to make huge concessions in order to get this bill passed. So are we saying that uh, people are finally looking up Yes, I can. I You know, there's there's obviously a lot to hate about this bill. There's a lot that's really obnoxious that Manchin had put in that's really obnoxious for frontline communities that are trying to preserve their clean air and clean water or trying to recover clean air and clean water from legacy pollution from decades of abuse in in communities that have not been able to fight against fossil fuel infrastructure. So there's a lot in there that's obnoxious. But on on balance, this is not just, gosh, it's the biggest we've ever made, which, you know, you could say is a low bar, but it's also going to actually make a difference. Um, you know, if if the bill is enacted, even even parts of this bill, if they were enacted individually, 
would be huge on their own. But together, collectively, on balance, they are going, I believe, to be a game changer. Now, for example, there are multiple independent estimates of the all the provisions in this uh, Inflation Reduction Act. They all agree that it will, if enacted, cut U.S. carbon emissions about 40 percent, roughly, give or take, 40 percent by 2030. That is below President Biden's target in the Paris Climate Agreement that, you know, the United States agreed to under Paris to cut our emissions 50 percent by 2030. That's 50 percent below 2005 levels, Mm -hmm. if you want to get technically specific about it, by 2030. So, you know, a lot of people, uh, for example, Brad, bradblog.com, and and the Bradcast host for whom I produce on Mondays at 3 p.m. So basically everyone is saying, this is a gotta start somewhere act. It <laughs> might have been a better. It doesn't scan as well in news reports, but you know that's what he's calling it. And I will just quote from Leah Stokes, who is a professor at uh, UC Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. climate policy expert. She says. Now, cutting emissions 40 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, all of these estimates agree with that. That will get us 80 percent of the way to the Paris target. And what it doesn't include are things that can't be modeled. You can't predict what people are going to do in the future. You can't predict how companies are going to respond to all of the provisions in the bill. You can't predict how states and uh, cities and communities are going to respond to the incentives in these bills that are not modeled that could actually accelerate and speed up the transition here. So you know, and also, by the way, new modeling by the Department of Energy that came out just in the last week also confirms 40 percent reduction in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 if enacted. And one of the things that the Department of Energy in their analysis came out with was that for all of the fossil fuel concessions in the bill, they modeled that for every one ton of greenhouse gas emissions that may be released because of this bill and its giveaways to fossil fuels, for every one ton, 34 tons will be removed from the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions inventory that gets released every year. So it is, you know, if enacted, that's that's huge. So uh, what? how do you think these improvements will uh, hit the streets uh, uh, more or less, I mean, consumers first and then finally manufacturing. And will the fact that a lot of these like uh, solar and battery uh, companies will be, uh, look at Tesla's going to Texas, will mm-hmm. be in the redder states? Does oh, that yes. make a difference? That Well, basically, it, it's got two levers, and those two levers will work in tandem with each other to apply to the U.S., the primary emitter sources, sectors. So the electricity generation is a major source of greenhouse gas emissions for the U.S., so it addresses that. And transportation is the other major contributor to U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. It addresses that as well, and it does it in two ways. It does it through industry and through households. So those are the two big levers there. Um, as you know, the industry lever is going to take some time because there are provisions in here to build a new domestic supply chain for batteries manufacturing, minerals mining and all of that, to build cars, electric cars here, to build heat pumps here, you know, next generation, super efficient heat pumps that work even in cold climates. Um, There are the household incentives, that lever will probably come out a lot faster because, you know, it's a smaller, it's a smaller ballgame there because, you know, individuals can access tax credits to, you know, electrify their homes or make their homes weatherized or more energy efficient. Those will go faster 
than trying to, say, build an entire manufacturing center in the United States from scratch. Because basically, the United States has had no industrial policy for decades. That's something that has been eroded through tax incentives, pushing corporations offshore, giving them incentives to, hey, go over there. We'll give you a huge tax credit if you give people jobs over there instead of, you know, expensive people over here. God forbid Americans should be paid for the work that they do. (laughs) That is going to change now because of the concessions to Manchin in this bill that Senator Manchin required that there be a domestic supply chain. Now, you can debate why he wanted that in there. Maybe he wanted it to slow down the transition away from fossil fuels. Maybe, maybe he genuinely believes that it's a good idea to have a domestic supply chain here. I personally believe after we saw what happened with the pandemic, how all of the offshoring of U.S. manufacturing really caused critical shortages here in the United Mm -hmm. States because of those decades of pushing it offshore on purpose through congressional legislation. It's a great idea to bring it back. It's going to take some time. There's going to be a bumpy road as we go across this, but it will bring back manufacturing to the U.S. and jobs to the U.S. I can't believe we there's at least one thing we both agree with Manchin. <laughs> I know. It's weird. And extra weird is the fact that, you know, a month ago, none of this was thought to be possible at all. But that aside, they got it done, and that's the important thing. So um, one of the things that I would say, a way to think about this, in addition to the two levers, the household lever and the industry lever, is to think of it as a giant bag of carrots. Because Manchin took out all the sticks, and then the Senate parliamentarian took out all the other sticks that didn't relate strictly to budget under budget reconciliation rules, which are really, you know, the, the way that you can get stuff passed in the Senate, but you have to do some finagling. It has to have some kind of fiscal impact in order to be con- included under budget reconciliation rules, which then allows it to bypass the filibuster and uh. pass with just a bare majority, which is just barely how this passed with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris mm-hmm. as the tiebreaker. Because no Republicans. Correct. No Republicans. Remember, at every stage along the way, Republicans voted against any kind of climate action. They voted against helping Americans save money on their energy costs. They voted against making pollution Cleaning up the air, cleaning up the water. They voted against all of these things. So this giant bag of carrots is, you know, the idea behind it is demand destruction. So in the past, one way to think of it is in the past, the approach that that many environmental groups were taking was we want to restrict fossil fuel supply. So we're going to try to cut back the supply side of things. And that, of course, has very powerful special interests lobbying in the fossil fuel industry. That is, you know, the biggest spending industry in Congress lobbying money of any industry. So Mm -hmm. very powerful industry arrayed against cutting back the supply, cutting them back. But if you invest in their competitors, which is what this bill does, it invests in renewable energy. It invests in reducing demand for fossil fuel at the outset. That is how the mechanism of these, this giant bag of carrots is supposed to work. So we'll see, we'll see if it actually works that way. But that's the idea. Right. I feel a little more positive. <laughs> so Manchin gets more money from uh, from coal than cinema does from drugs, huh? Well, that I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you because I haven't actually looked and seen how much money she got on campaign donations from the pharmaceutical industry. It was big. It was big. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> there you go. Actually, Manchin has made, I don't know, something, you know, I, I don't know how I couldn't tell you because his family as well, he sold his company to his family. So they're the ones making the money now. He divested it of it right. <laughs> himself of it and gave it to his son. So he, uh, you know, that's the best we
we can do right now. Again, it was either this or nothing. Right. So. Okay. Compromise, compromise. Yeah, you know, this This. This will get it started. This gets the ball rolling. Okay, so people want to know what the heck is a um, heat pump. Uh, tell us more about consumer heat pumps. Okay, so heat pumps, um, people probably remember them from the past. They're all electric. And back in like the 70s, you know, you couldn't really use them in cold climates. What they do is they basically take the heat from the air and use it to either heat or cool your home. And they do it electrically. They're um, heat pumps. The new uh, next generation super efficient electric heat pumps can, uh, I think they, they end up cutting your electricity bill something between 30 and 80 percent, depending on how much you use it and where your location is in the country. Right. Um, so it's something, though, that is not a cheap conversion to make. It would be like effectively buying a whole new air conditioning system for your house. And there are specifics that, that come with it, like whether you have ductwork and other stuff that I'm not exactly familiar with because I've never actually uh, gotten a heat pump on my own <laughs> to see what, how it works. But I, I hear from everybody who does have one, they love it and they would never go back. Well, I was born on a farm. We had a cistern for soft water, mm. and we had heat pumps. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, so there you go. So you have more familiarity with it than I do. And um, also to point that these are next generation, so they work ex- exceedingly well in cold climates. In Norway, for example. In Michigan. And, uh, there you go. <laughs> but uh, just uh, statistically speaking, in Norway, nearly all new heating and air conditioning systems that are being installed in Norway right now of them are all electric heat pumps. So if the Norwegians can figure it out, then I'm sure we can too. Uh So anyway, the the entire uh, bill has huge, huge, huge tax breaks that will help uh, households to bring down the costs of solar, bring down the cost of home batteries and other clean energy technology. It also has um, weatherization grants that can end tax credits. So if a low-income community, for example, they'll get grants. There's lots of funding for that as well to help low-income communities weatherize their homes, uh, work toward these all-electric decarbonization, uh, you know, decarbonize your home completely by moving to all-electric. So there's that for low-income communities. And then for middle-income and higher-income communities, there are tax credits that you can then apply for that will shave off a significant portion of the cost of electrifying your home or buying any of these you know, more efficient uh, heat pumps and solar panels or electric vehicles and all of that. So um, one of the analyses by Rewiring America found that consumers that utilize all of the incentives in the bill uh, would save about $1,800 in energy costs on average every year. So it's more than Almost just... $2,000 in yeah, energy costs yeah. off the books And it's for you. more than just rebates. It's actually helping some people pay for this stuff. Yes. Pay for it right off the top. Right. So it's... Uh, um, it's that's that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, D- direct uh, direct cash grants. Right. And there and there are there are facilities in provisions in the bill to sort of start moving in the direction of people who are renters and helping renters and landlords because you know landlords are going to have a different uh, a different approach to this. Especially like you've got a multifamily building that's going to be a lot of money to electrify that building. So that is not yet sort of really 
clear to me in the bill about where it goes, but I know that it is now on the table to begin to develop how we take care of all of this uh, rental stock. For example, in Los Angeles, that's a huge number of homes that would need to have some kind of that, that you need to start that transition going now and establish the rules now so that when the you know that we can begin that process of decarbonizing Los Angeles. I can't wait to be able to take a hot shower after <laughs> everyone else has. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, super efficient. They're, they're not, you know, it's it's on-demand water. It's on-demand hot water. That is a different system. But again, you know, once you go to it, everybody who has gone to it that I have spoken with never will go back to yeah. using gas appliances, natural gas-fired appliances, I, which I'm, can also blow up your home. And gosh, it's kind of crazy when you think about yeah. it to have an open flame in your house. Yeah. But that's where we are today, and that's where we're moving away from tomorrow. I've already uh, lobbied my landlord to go in that direction. Yeah, good, good. I mean, it's going to take time, and this is going to be a big transition. It's going to take time to figure out how we do it all. So anyway, yeah. that's, that's kind of one of the levers that goes for households to right. uh, sort of get that in motion there. Good. Yeah. Now, manufacturing jobs, uh, energy security. What? Uh, okay, let's talk about energy security um, and energy transition. Uh, that That's a lot of components aside from wind and solar. First of all, what is the definition of energy security? Do you have one? Well, you know, I, I don't have one like I would say just off the top of my head, energy security is a secure energy supply, and that is not dependent on what kind of energy it is. It is, is your energy supply secure, and is it free from coercion and blackmail like you're seeing in Europe, for example, where Europe, um, unfortunately, uh, Germany especially, decided to enter into an agreement with Russia, which is not a reliable trading partner, we have discovered, for much of their natural gas. and because now, now Germany has done a great job of slowly moving toward solar energy and wind energy, but they're still heavily dependent on natural gas right. and heavily dependent on Russia. And this has ironically, you know, President Putin's invasion of Ukraine, ironically, is appearing to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels because he has forced Europe to diversify and move even faster in the direction they were already going in. They were already going to switch to renewable energy. They're already in the process. In fact, Germany's solar sector has just had a a record generation year, a record deployment, record building, record generation. So you know, it's it's a it's a really difficult transition time right now. Like I said, it's you know both levers push me, pull you, everything two steps forward, one step back. All of that um, is happening right now, but it is appearing to accelerate it for everybody else, which is a, a, an ironic result. <laughs> Of, of Putin's invasion yeah. of Ukraine. So anyway, that would be energy security. Um, for example, uh, and there are ways that you might not think about energy security now that we're on the topic. Um, so in France, France is having to shut down its nuclear plants because of drought, because there's the, the water in the rivers is drying up right. and because of climate change. It's too warm to cool the reactors because of climate change. So they're having to curtail uh, energy generation from nuclear plants. Now, that is a problem for energy security. Same thing with hydroelectric plants. In China, because of drought, they are having a similar problem with not being able, and and also, of course, here, Lake Mead, as you've heard, I'm sure, is Mm -hmm. dropping, uh, uh, you know, is is actually close to dropping below its ability to produce power. That's called power pool status, which means it can't 
put enough water, there's not enough water to put through to generate electricity. So these are ways in which hydroelectric power and nuclear power, um, you know, Russia threatening the Zaporizhia, the Zaporizhia yeah. uh, nuclear plant in Ukraine. Probably so these are ways. Scary. Exactly. So they show you that, you know, there are certain types of energy that are less secure than others, especially if they can be bombed, if they can stop functioning because of climate change. So, you know, it, it does put us toward more energy security, this bill does, in order to, you know, rely more on solar, wind, and batteries, and geothermal as well. That's really important, geothermal energy. Right. That, that, you know, things that can't be stopped by some foreign power, things that will be less inclined to be uh, curtailed from external forces. By the way, China, just this morning I heard, China is seeding its clouds to get rain. Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's a dire situation, and that is that is the that's the sad part about all of this is the uh, you know lifting China lifting its people out of poverty is why it has you know doubled down on fossil fuels. But on the other hand, China is also the biggest developer of renewable energy right. in the world by far. Right. Every year, China has deployed hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investment in solar and wind, mm-hmm. which. Uh, you know, like five times what the U.S. has done. So, so they're they're doing both. They're tr- they're they're trying to pull back as quickly as possible. But you know, it's one of those tensions between the um, developing countries and developed countries. Developed countries like the United States are by far more responsible for the CO2 that is in the atmosphere now. Historically. By far, especially the United States, has a very big moral responsibility to cut back because the United States has been by far historically the biggest contributor to climate change. So China's working on that. The U.S. is working on it. The European Union is working on it. Uh, Africa has different needs. They're also working on it. So we're trying to all work together to get this moving forward. And it's a huge, bumpy road. (laughs) I guess we're going to be seeing even more chemtrails in the California sky. <laughs> well, of course, chemtrails aren't real. They aren't. They're just. They're just uh, jet exhaust. That's all. Why they do are. they keep zigzagging, because... and why do they fall into clouds by the end of the day? That's my question. <laughs> because of wind. The wind blows it around. Why so. do they keep crossing? What That's are they making the their There's... design? No, I'm talking about the jets. Oh, they oh, make I see. an actual net pattern in the sky. What? <laughs> it, because because jet pilots have nothing else to do but play around. <laughs> well, you'd have to look at their actual flight manifest to understand what they're doing. But Tic-tac-toe they might be doing something <laughs> in the sky. Okay, we had to have a <laughs> we had to have a little humor here. I'm yes, spe- I'm speaking with Desi Doyen, by the way, who hosts the Green News Report with Brad. Brad Friedman on KPFK's Bradcast and bradblog.com. Uh, when's, when's the show uh, happening on KPFK again? So Brad blo- uh, the Bradcast is right. on Mondays at 3 p.m. And we love to take your calls, so please call us when uh, when we're on, because we love to have actual caller feedback that's, when we can. That's KPFK 90.7 FM and kpfk.org. Yes. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, well, I have one more thing I want okay, to make good. sure. So, so the uh, so Mansion got all kinds of concessions for the fossil fuel right. industry. So, I think we should we should cover that. Oh, um, so okay. so yes, the Inflation Reduction Act it still binds the U.S. to fossil fuel production. Unfortunately, yeah. it still ties the success of renewable energy on the public's lands to the fate of fossil fuels on those same public lands. So, right. uh, in order to get Mansion's vote. The bill requires the Interior Department to offer 
uh, at least two million more acres of public lands and offshore waters for oil and gas leading, leasing every year for the next 10 years as a prerequisite to any lease sales for solar and wind energy. So if the department failed to offer these amounts for, of land and offshore for leasing, then no right-of-way could be granted for any utility-scale solar or wind energy project on public lands or waters. Right. So that is not great. That's no. that's one of those obnoxious provisions that right. is just awful. But but what is it uh, like a mile per mile? Are the the eco-friendly people are they getting enough bang for their buck in this deal? Yes. Yes, because I mean, there's two, two, two aspects of it. So, um, you know, you have to the, the, the Interior Department has to offer. It doesn't have to ensure they're sold. It doesn't have to ensure they're developed. It just oh, has to offer them. Okay. It only has to hold the sale before it can hold you know, like, like two, two sales first before it can hold a renewable energy uh, offshore or onshore sale, like for offshore wind, for example. So it just has to offer them. And recently, the oil and gas industry has not been that interested in leasing public lands. Oh. So even if they do offer these, again, they don't have to sell them. The industry doesn't have to buy them. And then they can go ahead and offer the oil, the uh, the renewable energy leasing as well. And those potential provisions might get stopped by lawsuits and court rulings that, you know, right now, for example, just just a, a couple of days ago, a judge in Colorado reinstated the Biden's uh, Biden administration's pause on oil and gas leasing because they need to finish conducting what they were planning to do, which was, gosh, we have to examine the climate change impact of all of this new leasing. So that may not even happen. Now, there's another concession that also came in. In the fall, Manchin, he got Pelosi and Schumer, the Democratic leadership in Congress, mm -hmm. to agree to pre create a bill in the fall that, will, that they call permitting reform, which uh, will make it harder for communities to object to new energy infrastructure, fossil fuel energy, energy infrastructure, or even renewable energy infrastructure. Oh. It is not clear whether or not that bill will pass, but that was one of the concessions. We agree we will put this bill up oh. and we'll see what happens. Well, we'll see if it actually gets passed. But if it does... Is that after the midterms? That, no, that would be before. Okay. That, that, but that's if they can get, you know, it has to clear a 60-vote threshold in the oh, Senate. Oh, that's right. So, you know, but even if it does pass, again, remember, Department of Energy analysis found that for every one ton that might, uh, of fossil fuel pollution that might be increased, it will remove 30, 34 mm -hmm. tons Correct. of greenhouse gas emissions in response with the, all the other levers That's that are available. That's a good proportion. So, you know, we'll see. It's, it's not great. But it is there. A so decent, that, those are two important proportion. things. Yeah, right. I think so. I think that's a pretty decent ratio there, yeah. 1 to 34. Yeah. So uh, that, I think, and also it, it raises royalty rates on oil and gas extraction of the public's resources from the public's lands. It also installs a methane fee that it will begin to rein in the oil and gas industry's methane leaks. It's not great. It's kind of weak, but that can be strengthened later. But at least it puts it on the books for the first time ever. That doesn't include uh, cows, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't include cows. But, you know, I will say, you've probably heard about this. There is a study that shows that if you feed a certain kind of seaweed and put it into cattle feed, that it actually reduces their, their methane emissions, their, you know, burps and farts <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> quite to a bit. It, to put so. it succinctly. Yeah. And also, also by the way, there's also uh, funding to accelerate carbon capture and sequestration. The oil industry... 
of course, is the most uh, profitable industry in the history of mankind, but they want the taxpayer to pay for them to sequester their carbon emissions. And that is also super obnoxious because they can pay for it themselves. The problem is that carbon capture and storage, you know, at the point of burning it, you capture the carbon emissions and then you go bury them underground somewhere. You hide them under a rock, I yeah, hear. right. Um, <laughs> you know, there's very limited... It's just going to be a limited lever, but hey, if it works... And they can get the oil industry to pay for it and not taxpayers. But if this can work, then it might actually be a good thing in the long term. It's just kind of a giveaway. And it's really careful to make – we have to be really careful that the fossil fuel industry doesn't use it as an excuse to continue polluting at the same rate, that it's supposed to draw it back. And the other possibility with that is that if – carbon capture and storage does become a thing, then the EPA potentially can require it to be installed on coal-fired power plants, in which case it would be so prohibitive that, you know, the coal plant would not be able to. Because the law doesn't tell you what kind of restriction you have to put to reduce your pollution from your coal-powered plants. It just says you have to use the best available technology. Well, whatever that best available technology is, you've got to use it. So, okay, you've just decided that you want this carbon capture and storage. Well, I guess that's the best available technology. Good luck with that. You've got yeah. to put it on. So yeah. that, that kind of, you know, there are ways, there are nuances to this bill that take away the, um, the flood of, of fossil fuel increases in emissions and everything that help to reduce that gradually. And then I think that will get the ball rolling down the hill and that will gain acceleration and speed as we go. Good. Yeah. Well, speaking of floods. Yes. <laughs> I heard, I was just a guy at the bar saying, oh, just wait till the big flood comes. Yes. And I went, huh? Yeah. So, okay, so tell me if this is real or a myth or what? This is real. Uh, sadly, oh, this is real. Um, so in 1862, there was the Great Flood of California. It rained for, I think, 30 to 40 days. I can't remember the exact number of days, but it rained almost nonstop. Noah made it through that one. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> He's a little older than that, I thought. But, um, but yes, yeah, so basically, um, the Central Valley at the time was barely populated. It created the Central Valley, became an inland sea about five feet deep. It killed uh, hundreds of thousands of cattle. It killed people. It rendered the farmland in the Central Valley unusable. And that was just in 1860. I mean, it extended the flood. The the, the inland sea extended from Sacramento down to Bakersfield and farther south. But it wasn't salt water, at least. No, it was fresh water. But it still destroyed everything in its path, and that floodwaters remained for weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, talk about a cistern. We we might need one now. Yeah, so so basically um, a big study was done a couple of years ago by Daniel Swain at UCLA, a climate professor, a climate a researcher, and he had he and his colleagues had determined that the these storms, they call them arc storms because it's an atmospheric river and it comes about every thousand years. That's the K. Atmospheric river, a thousand years, arc, A-R-K. Mm-hmm. So arc storms, these atmospheric rivers, um, this particular kind of storm that is an atmospheric river and then just becomes like a freight train of just one atmospheric river after the other. So like, you know, those big rains that Southern California gets, like, you know, we get like six, three, four, five, six of them a year. And that's what we get most of our yeah. water from and in our it, reservoirs. gone. And our snowfall, correct, you know, our snowpack up in the mountains. This would be a series, a freight train of storms like that, 
every day for a month or more. And no stop, no let up, no place for the water to go except out to the ocean and, you know, flooding everywhere in between. So Mm. the... The study that they had done in the past was like, this appears to come every 100 to 200 years. So that's kind of a problem for the United States and for California specifically, because, you know, we're about 150 years almost from the last one. So if they come every 100, 200 year cycle, then we have to be starting to get ready for the next one. Now, well, that's the question. So the new study, however, increases the odds. It says now, because of climate change, having Mm. warmed the oceans, and the warming of the oceans is where these atmospheric Ah. rivers get their energy and their moisture. Because remember, a warmer atmosphere evaporates more moisture from the ocean and can hold more moisture. A warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. So Mm -hmm. it will actually accelerate and intensify the amount of moisture that is uh, got up, that is that is absorbed up into these clouds, right. evaporated into these clouds, that then comes across and gets dumped on California. So that new study finds that it is it has doubled the odds of it happening in any given year. So how do we prepare? Yeah. Right now, the state of California, uh, Gavin Newsom and the different environmental agencies that would and the disaster management agencies are aware of this study and they have launched the process of beginning to figure out how do we respond to this? We've already got, as you know, you know, because California is prone to earthquakes, we have tons of preparations for earthquakes. We know what's going to happen if, you know, like there's a new reservoir, for example, that's built by Disney Studios in Burbank. For the last ten, five to 10 years, they've been building new underground reservoirs to store water. In case of, you know, the big uh, San Andreas Fault going again, somebody a couple of years ago noted, hey, if we have another San Andreas Uh, earthquake, then it's going to shut off the water supply to California because all of our water supplies and our reservoirs are east of the Interstate 5. Mm -hmm. So anything that's west of Interstate 5 gets cut off. We need to build some reservoirs. We've done it. So that reservoir is now working and is filling up right now. Great news. The problem is we have not done the same amount of planning yet for this new arc storm and that, you know, we now find is uh, or that this new study suggests is going to come, you know, the the risk is now doubled of it coming in any given year. So how do we survive it? That's a great question. And I hope that when the state of California and all of the different agencies and all of the different communities and counties and their emergency management um, uh, uh, departments get all together and figure out how to respond to this, because it's going to be If it happens the way it did in 1862, it will be a trillion-dollar disaster, the worst disaster in U.S. history. And it will have massive implications across the U.S. economy because California right now produces about 30, 40 percent of the nation's food, you know, fruits and vegetables and and, you know, even cattle production and all of that. So so there's quite a bit that would be disrupted that would radiate out across the entire United States. Now, I mentioned cistern. In Michigan, we used to have those in the basement, and they were fairly large. Yes. And they collected rainwater. Yes. Now, what a reservoir is, it's just a big cistern. It's a gigantic cistern. Well, that's another thing to think about. So remember, a couple years ago, it was during an El Nino, and the rains were so strong that the Oroville Dam up in central California became very close to yeah. to to collapsing you know it was the water was just about to spill over the top and then they discovered oh there's structural damage in the spillway yep. and that caused that, that could have if it had failed it would have uh caused instant flooding that would have just Pierce, yeah. wiped out cities, cities yeah. and so when 
a giant storm like that comes, we have to make sure that all of our dams and all of our reservoirs are shored up and at their highest structural integrity, everything that we need to do. So it's going to be a years-long project to get ready for the next arc storm. And since we now know that it's going to double the risk of it happening in any given year, that we have to accelerate the planning for that. And and by the way, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom just last week uh, proposed $8 billion in new investments to uh, to upgrade the state's water systems across communities and water delivery across the, you know, the entire uh, water project that goes from, you know, the Sacramento Delta all the way down to Southern California. Um, also, stormwater management and flood management. So, you know, we have a lot of aging systems that have not had the kind of maintenance investment that they've needed. So all this deferred maintenance over all these years because, you know, the money was diverted to something else. That's what he's pushing it toward now is to upgrade all of these water systems, help households uh, reduce their water use and be more water efficient, fixing leaks, you know, especially the big leaks uh, throughout the big water mains and all the big cities. So there's a lot that goes to it. Um, he did not address the new study showing that we have to prepare for this as well. But right. this, that, you know, those investments will help to prepare water systems and cities for a deluge of water, but it won't be enough. So it's going to take right. years to sort of uh, figure out where the investments need to be to prepare for this gigantic storm that appears to be coming at some point. Uh, we just have to be ready for it. So it'll take a couple of years to get that ready and then start to deploy those uh, measures to, to be ready for it. I, I love the fact that you answered so many of my questions before I asked. Oh, okay, them. good. <laughs> so, that is, no, that's right. great. You know, and there's lots more in this bill. Obviously, you know, there's plenty to read up on it. You can always go to our website at greennews.bradblog.com. You can click on any of our reports, and below them we have a boatload of links that you can read if you want to go more in depth on any of this stuff. You can really just you know geek out, geek out to your heart's content. And you just it. answered another, my next question. <laughs> Desi Dorian, who hosts the Green News Report with Brad Friedman of KPFK's Bradcast and bradblog.com. Thank you very much for enlightening us as you always do, Desi. You are welcome. I'm glad I could help in some way. <laughs> you have. That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see see you you online. online.